Hey, it's Tamara. I want to proceed today's episode with something that happened after this episode was recorded. At the time, my guest, Elin Green, was manager of victim services for the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. I say was because she's since retired from that three decades plus long career. This is one of several conversations I've had with Elin in recent years. If you read my book, The Trauma Beat, A Case for Rethinking the Business of Bad News, you'll see her name mentioned several times. That's because Elin is one of those gems of a human being that has so much compassion and so much thoughtful reflection and so much wisdom to offer and share. Now, about the conversation you're about to hear. After we finished recording it, I was speaking with Elin about all the guilt I carried for all the things I got wrong as a crime reporter when I thought I was getting them right, when I thought my very good intentions were good enough. And she told me something that has helped me so much and that I hope helps you too, should you be feeling any guilt for the ways you got things wrong as a journalist, victim service provider, investigator, or just someone trying to support a trauma survivor in any way you could because you wanted to ease their hurt. And this is what she said. It's not guilt, it's growth. Think about that. It's not guilt, it's growth. All right, here's the episode. You're listening to The Trauma Beat, hosted by me, Tamara Cherry. Check the show notes for anything that might activate your own trauma responses. And as always, like, subscribe, leave a review, do what you can if you like what you hear. Episode 10, my conversation with survivor support worker, Elin Green. So Elin, why don't you just start out by introducing yourself? My name is Elin Green, and I'm currently manager of victim services and human trafficking at the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Um, But my career has taken many twists and turns. I started in the victim service field in 1974 as a volunteer with a rape crisis center. And from there, it kind of spiraled and it became my passion. So I've worked in a variety of capacities and environments over the years. You've really seen it all. How did you get into this line of work, Elin? I want to say that it was sort of an accidental, um, accidental uh, sort of moment. Um, I was one of those strange kids that from a very early age, I knew what I wanted to be. And I knew that I wanted to be um, in the field of behavioral health. I wanted to understand how the mind works. And I did some volunteer work for a rape crisis center as I was entering my freshman year of college. And I realized that that was what I wanted to do. Um, I was so inspired by the victims and I, I just felt so motivated to not just be their help them find their voice, not be their voice. I wanted to help them find their voice. And from there, that was it. It became my passion. And as I moved around the country later um, with my family, I was um, in positions where I needed to start over in many cases. I was a therapist by training and eventually it just sort of evolved into victim services 100%. Wow. And you have been uh, with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department for close to three decades now. Yes. <laughs> wow. So, Elin, um, what does the term trauma-informed journalism mean to you? 
It, it means a lot of things. Uh, first, it's the language that journalists use and understanding how simple words can be offensive or triggering um, or just hurtful. For example, uh, when they describe a scene, a homicide, and they describe a prostitute being murdered, things like that, um, that captivates the audience. A prostitute has been murdered, but it's very triggering and very painful to those that are victims of human trafficking, um, or even by choice as sex workers and feeling that they're being labeled. So the language that we use, um, for example, in the United States, anyone under the age of 18 engaging in sex work of any kind in exchange for money or commodity is a victim of human trafficking. Mm. And we often describe them as teenage prostitutes. Again, it's inaccurate, um, but it's also very hurtful. And it's not just human trafficking. It's anything that we describe. And when we go into details about their gang affiliation or whatever, we're defining that moment in their life where they may have been an innocent victim. So the language that's used. The other thing is understanding the impact of trauma and understanding some of the things that happen to a victim when they respond to a journalist and what that outcome for the victim is that may be very different than the journalist. And quite often when we're telling a story, we're always asked, is there a victim we can talk to? Understand that there's a lot of victims out there who will talk, but they may not be prepared. Mm -hmm. and, and we have to vet or screen victims to make sure that they really are at a healthy, balanced place in their life and that they have support so it's not just a random, well, she was a victim of a DUI, so we can talk to her. It's making sure that they have support once they tell their story. So there's so many layers to trauma-informed journalism. And it's also recognizing that you might start a story that looks really great. And then you realize, I don't know, this person maybe isn't ready to tell their story. So I don't want to put it out there. I want to touch on something you said just a second ago about <clears throat> there being any number of victims or survivors out there that might be willing to speak, but they might not necessarily be prepared because as a journalist, um, and I know many other journalists out there, I think my instinct was, you know, I always love talking to trauma survivors because they weren't prepared. They were, they were real people. They're not, they're not scripted like a politician or a school board trustee or an athlete, you know, they're, they're, they're real human beings just pouring their hearts out to us. And so I think when journalists hear that victims or survivors need to be prepared to speak to the media, they might feel that they're not getting the raw truth or they're getting some sort of, I don't want to use the word spin because it wouldn't, I don't think there'd be an assumption that it would be malicious in any way in that, in that case. But, um, can you explain the importance of that preparation and, and how that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not getting the story? Because in, like in my experience, in my current role, preparation actually, I find, gets the better story. But can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Preparation isn't taking away the realness of the story. It's preparing uh, the person that's talking to the media for a couple things. One is what's going to happen to this information that I'm giving you? And um, how does it 
How does it play out? What control do I have in terms of the information that I'm providing? And I can give kind of a comical example. I was doing an interview with the media about just, it was kind of general around homicides and child deaths. And there was a case that was particularly, it was very raw for me. And I wanted to be as professional as I could. And I remember uh, they came to my house to do the interview because they were time crunch. So they came to my house and we were in my living room and I started to get very emotional and I didn't want that because I wanted to present as a professional. I was not a survivor. And so I just started making like really bizarre hand gestures and moving around and jumping on my couch and doing some bizarre things to stop the interview so that I could regain control. And it became kind of a laughing you know, thing for them. They were like, okay, here's a tissue. Um, <laughs> but victims don't always know that they, can, that they can stop an interview or that they can convey that message in a certain way. So that preparation is, uh, and also letting them know What's going to happen to the story? When does it air? One of the things that is so critical is that they, even though they just did the interview and they know it's going to air, turning on their TV and seeing that image of them telling their story can be so painful. And not just to them, but to those around them, their family members, the neighbors that were traumatized. So having some uh, knowledge about what this might look like and when it might air is really important. So it's giving some control to a, to a victim or a survivor. But the other piece of preparation is also letting them know um, that, that they can stop the interview if they're not comfortable. If, if there's a question that they're not comfortable with, they don't have to answer, giving them permission because we often don't know that it's okay to take that. Mm -hmm. What do you think, just expanding on that, um, what do you think that informed consent should look like from the beginning? Like what should be the whole conversation, whether with the, the victim or survivor uh, between the victim and survivor and the journalist or a victim service provider, such as yourself, who might be acting as a liaison, what should that conversation look like before? Because I know in my experience as a journalist, so often you're just showing up, knocking on the door, right. the microphone's out, and there's not really that much of a conversation at all. Well, being aware that just showing up like that um, is not trauma-informed. And obviously, you've got to get the story. You've got a time crunch. You want it to be on the 5 o'clock news. Your deadline is 2 p.m. You haven't been able to reach that victim, so you show up. I think that for victims, it often feels like they don't have a choice, and they may talk. The other part of preparation, often as a victim advocate, it's not preparing them for the interview. It's preparing them for the what can happen. They may say something that can harm the case under investigation. So it's, it's trying to explain to them um, exactly what happens when you talk to the media. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, if you say, you know, and it might not even be reality, um, I really think it was um, the ex-boyfriend. I, I really do. And the police are going to look at that. That may not be the case. They may have already eliminated him as a suspect, but now we've got more information out there that shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. So victims need to be prepared as to what they can and cannot. I'm about to be joined by my cat, Sam. <laughs> Wonderful. Who, who joins me for everything <laughs> online. Wonderful. So here is Sam. Hi, I'm Sam. Sam behave. Oh, Sam's um, beautiful. So the preparation is, is, is helping victims to understand, A, you can say no, 
if you're not comfortable and B, that you're prepared about the information that you put out there and what that may look like. Um, and I know that we have, for example, the Victims of Crime Program and they help to cover funeral expenses in a homicide. They may cover medical expenses in a violent crime. So there's a lot of different things and you'll get victims talking about how they, they have no money um, and they need to go fund me and that opens a whole other area. Um, so it's, it's really preparing victims and then preparing them for when that interview airs. So something like a GoFundMe, could, could that hinder them from getting access to other government support dollars? That Absolutely. Might be available? There, are, there are certain programs that are payer of last resort. Mm -hmm. So if there's money coming in, what we always advise victims um, is if, if there is a GoFundMe, and they certainly, if they need it, they need it. But rather than saying it's for funeral expenses, for example, mm -hmm. it's a general GoFundMe to support the family or support the children or support the medical needs of the victim, um, as opposed to something, well, not even the medical needs, but something so specific mm -hmm. that it could preclude them from other forms of government support. That's a really um, valuable point, I think, Elin, for journalists in particular, because I think quite often it's journalists that tell victims and survivors about the option of setting up a GoFundMe. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's because I think we're so used to, you know, you cover the day of event and then you cover the GoFundMe that is set up. And somehow that is how victims are actually identified publicly. And then you cover the funeral. And so I think that sometimes it's because we're so wired to think, okay, first comes this and then comes the GoFundMe. And, uh, and sometimes it's, we're trying to be helpful and so like, there's, there's so much take, take, take as a journalist that you want to help where you can. And I think journalists will often just throw out, like you can have somebody set up a GoFundMe to help with your funeral expenses. So that's an excellent uh, piece to throw out there for journalists that tell them to consult with their victim service provider or investigator or whoever to find out what resources are out there before going ahead with that. Now, Elin, in your decades of experience working with uh, trauma victims and survivors, would you describe the impact of the media on these people as mostly positive, mostly negative, or split down the middle? I think it is what it is for the victim. Uh, for some victims, it's an opportunity to tell their story and it's uncensored and they just get to tell their story, which is part of their healing or whatever it is for them. For others, it can be traumatizing because they later go, I, I didn't really want to say that or... Um, I didn't want people to know, things like that. Questions come up, um, you know, again, going back to maybe human trafficking, you know, wasn't your daughter involved in the sex industry? Mm. You know, that question comes up because that's one of the questions that may be asked by a journalist when they're, and, and there could also be things, I've worked with families where we know certain things, um, drug use, drug sales, um, sex work and we've chosen not to tell them at that juncture but we use that before we prepare them for court mm. um, because we want to give them that chance to grieve so it, it all depends on the individual case what support systems if they have no support system and again that goes back to the knock on the door do they have a support person with them or are they alone in their home mm -hmm. and the journalist shows up I want to I want to pick up on that point about families being asked about things like drug dealing, gang connections, sex work, and they might not know. Because as a journalist, there were times that I would get that information from, say, a police source. 
um, or, uh, you know, court records or whatever. And I would just assume that the family sort of knew and I would want to bring it up so that they weren't taken off guard by the story. Can you speak to, because I think this is a lesson both for journalists and victim survivors and investigators, victim service providers and investigators in how harmful that can be in the immediate aftermath when that becomes the narrative, whether they're aware of that part of their loved one or not. Many times they are aware to an extent, I will say 99%, but there's still a sense of denial. And it's still that protecting their loved one from having that narrative out in the news. Um, as victim advocates, that's our role is to support them. There's a story that's coming out. And we also inform them that a lot of times journalists get their story from quote unquote, uh, a police informant or another uh, segment of the population that doesn't have the whole story. And sometimes uh, facts get misconstrued and, and we really have to protect our victims. So we always tell them, if you have a question about the story, ask us mm -hmm. um, and, and don't believe everything that you hear out there. For example, um, we had one, it was a homicide and he was described consistently as a dropout. He had been out for six or seven days from school due to mono, mm -hmm. mononucleosis, not a high school dropout. But someone said, no, he hasn't been in school in more than a week. He was a high school dropout in the, in the narrative. So those are the kinds of things that we prepare families for as best we can. And that communication between journalists, the surviving family members, the victims themselves, um, and the advocates is so critical because it gives us a chance. We can be with them to support them as opposed to you know, having them say and do things that they later resent or that they're uncomfortable with because they felt compelled. I think that what you're describing in terms of that collaboration between victim service providers, journalists, investigators, uh, really remains, in my experience, both here in Canada and from what I've heard from many survivors in the United States, the exception rather than the expectation. Um, I've heard quite often from survivors, for example, that they won't be in touch with somebody from victim services until after the media has come and gone even after the funeral. So in, in the 24 hour news cycle, the journalists might be knocking on their door within hours of the homicide, for example. Can you speak to like how critical it is to have that collaboration and how, um, how possible it is? Because I think a lot of people think, well, this is just the way it's always been done. We can't like that would involve more resources or whatever, but Put us in that frame of mind of, of just making that the expectation rather than the exception. In a perfect world, and I don't anticipate that we are in a perfect world or we will get there, but I would love to see journalists ask a victim when they approach them in that hour because they often get it on their scanners. Um, and it could be a Saturday or a Sunday and victim advocates haven't yet mobilized mm -hmm. uh, to connect with that um, victim or their surviving family members to say, are you in touch with a victim advocate? Mm. You know, ha has someone reached out to you? And, and give that opportunity um, for them to say no, or who is your support person? You know, do you have someone that can be here with you, especially if they're alone? And if um, they say no, then what? If they say no, I would love to see journalists educated about what some of the resources are 
who they can reach out to or even just say to the victim, here's a number that you can call. Cards maybe for journalism. So we have cards for law enforcement to give out around domestic violence. Here are some of the immediate resources. You can get an emergency order of protection. Um, let's have something for journalists to say, these are some of the numbers that you can reach out to. Um, we have a local program called the Trauma Intervention Program, which is all volunteers. And they're very well trained and they go out 24 seven to any type of seeing just to provide initial support. And then they connect with, with my victim advocates for some longer term support. And I think that these are some of the areas that we could work together better Mm -hmm. um, and, and probably, um, more trauma informed. So if somebody says, exactly. So if, if I'm a journalist and I'm knocking on a door and I say, who are you working with? And they say, nobody, I don't know. Nobody's been in touch with me. And I say, okay, well, here are some numbers is the thing that I should be doing. Then turn around, walk away or say, give me a call once you've consulted with somebody. Um, or is there any circumstance where it would be okay for me to say, can I just ask you a few questions because I'm putting the story together right. in two hours from now? Yes, and, and you have the right to say no if you add that in. Right. Um, and, and they may say yes and they may say no, um, or is this a good time? Can I talk to you? This is my timeline, but if you're not ready, it's okay. So let's talk about that knock at the door because it happens so often. Um, You've already said just being there, like that's showing you're not trauma informed, but I did it countless times in my career. And I never knew if somebody would slam the door in my face or whether they would invite me in. Can you talk about the impact in the immediate aftermath of say a traumatic loss um, of a journalist showing up at somebody's door as they are just coming, well, not even coming to terms yet with, with this loss and everything that, that comes along with it? I think that um, one of the best examples was on um, October 1st, 2017, actually the second, when we established our Family Assistance Center here in Las Vegas at the Convention Center. One of the things that we did is before the opening, we allowed um, some political figures, uh, some of the supporters and the journalists to come through and see what that space looked like. After that, they were not allowed in to give private space for the victims and the survivors. Um, so that was a perfect example of creating a safe space for the victims and the survivors. When they're in their own home, they don't have that option if someone knocks on the door. But I think it's just being aware um, that victims will often not feel that they can say no. Someone's standing there, they're, they're overwhelmed with grief. It's a chaotic time. Um, they're also still hoping that it's not true. And this person standing in front of them just confirmed that it is absolutely true. So that's just another layer of trauma. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned one October. Um, this might be a good opportunity to, to pivot then to the, the, the topic of mass violence. You were unfortunately a, a first responder for one October. Uh, if you're comfortable talking about it, what, what can you tell me about what lessons you learned about the impact to the media on mass violence survivors from that experience, whether they are the uh, next of kin of the people who died or the people who were injured there or the physically uninjured survivors of which there were, I mean, there were countless of, of all of those, but what did you learn about the impact to the media when it comes to mass violence? 
I think there were a couple things. One is I learned um, probably around 8 p.m. our time on the 2nd. I was with a gentleman from Canada, as a matter of fact, whose wife was killed um, at the festival grounds. And at this point, even though there was no confirmation, we still didn't have positive IDs on the victims because of the numbers. Um, it was fairly certain that she didn't just lose her phone as many victims did. Um, we checked hospitals. He was doing this all day long and um, you know, still no word, no word. And he was very distraught. And then all of a sudden he came to me and he was so angry because uh, the Canadian Royal Mounted Police had come to their home in Canada and informed his family while he was here. And he said, if they can tell me what happened to my wife, why can't you? And what I realized is that the media is like an octopus all over the place and word gets out. It could have been social media, it could have been so many, so many things that kind of alerted uh, to this response in another country. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first thing is to realize that word travels very quickly and social media is certainly another impact that uh, we never anticipated, especially when families find out about a murder before we even know who the family members are through social media mm -hmm. because of their connections. So that was the first thing. The second thing was that um, not everyone wanted to talk. Some people wanted to talk about their loved one, um, but the media sort of zoomed in on certain people and they became the story. Yeah. They became the story behind um, a mass murder. And I think that probably happens in other communities, although I can't speak to that, but um, there's certain people that are to the media more articulate, more open, whatever it is, they're getting a good story so they continue to follow them. And it often feels like, what about my loved one? What about my experience? Nobody's talking to me and why is that? So I think that that's something that's a, a secondary trauma Mm -hmm. that comes out of interactions, not just the media, but the public in general. Mm -hmm. You know, why do we focus on certain families and not others? And I think also what you're describing there is absolutely like in the, in the unequal treatment of victims and survivors in the media, there can be harm done to the people that are feeling ignored by the media or why is my story not worthy? But also when you think about the people whose stories are covered from day one to the first year anniversary to the second and on and on, um, there can be some harm there also, because sometimes when people agree reluctantly or, you know, with informed consent at the beginning to talk, they might not realize that that means that the media is going to return to them over and over again. Can you perhaps maybe touch on the harm that can come from that? Because as a journalist, and I know with many of my media colleagues, we think that if somebody gives one interview to one reporter, it's like, well, that person is talking. So now everybody can go talk to them and we can call them again in a month and in a year. And tell me about how that evolves from day one. I think for trauma, um, it, it becomes a process. And I've worked with homicide survivors who we bonded because we spent so much time together over several years. Um, we called each other on the phone. Um, I was sort of their, their connection to the story. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we met for coffee and I went to court with them if there was a court case pending. And if not, I was with them to celebrate um, birthdays that that they could no longer celebrate with their loved one. So it was a very, very powerful relationship. And then all of a sudden it stopped mm-hmm. at their choice. You know, they suddenly uh, there was no more phone calls. There was no more reaching out. Um, things like that. And what I came to realize, and then years later, they would reach back out. What I came to realize is that they needed to move past the trauma and they needed to, they still on, on social media, they still post birthdays and anniversaries, but they needed to disconnect a little bit from that initial, the people that surrounded them and held them up. Not that they weren't grateful years later um, because they are but that need to sometimes say, okay, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And when, when the media continues to follow them, sometimes they feel that obligation. When anyone continues, I'm sure that if I would have pressed these victims that kind of disengaged, if I would have pressed, they wouldn't have said, go away, please. Mm -hmm. But they were sending messages that they needed their space. Mm And I think that as journalists, when you do that follow-up a year later, two years later, you may not um, realize that they've gotten to a place where that's in one space and they're in a different space now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the elements that reporters use to tell their stories that can be harmful to survivors. You've touched on a few of them already. Um, with some of the terminology, for example. But for example, footage of the car wreck or the shot of the body being removed from the scene or images of the murder weapon or cell phone video from the shooting. Can you talk to me a little bit about what impact these sorts of images have on trauma survivors? We've had a lot of conversations and not lately, but um, in the past, we've had a lot of conversations with our local media regarding the use of both file footage and also those graphic images. What, what they don't realize is that many times while this isn't, you know, how could, how could mom not know that her son was just killed? Mom doesn't know. And neither does the sister who, who sees that on, you know, some other news affiliate that picked it up across the state. So families have in fact been notified on the local news at 11 o'clock because they don't know that their son who doesn't live at home isn't coming home that night. They have no way of knowing that. Nobody's reached out to them because the police haven't identified who the next of kin is. And in many states, next of kin is the first person that will be notified. And they're not just going to put out a a blast um, to say this person was just murdered. Does anybody belong to him or her? It doesn't work like that. So I think that those images, and not only that, but even if the family is very aware, They don't want to see it over and over and over again. The same way I remember for me as someone and first responder, I responded to the victims and the survivors. I wasn't at the scene of one October, but every day having to replay that was was gut-wrenching for me. And I eventually just turned off the TV. And I advised victims and survivors to do the same. It was way too much. It didn't give you a chance to process. So when you keep seeing that car wreck, um, it just is an image. The same way that victims will often say, I wanna see the autopsy report. And we will tell them it's your right, you have that right, 
but I strongly recommend against doing it now. Mm -hmm. Think about it in the future. It's always available, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. And, and that curiosity isn't, it's very normal. I want to see what happened. I want to see exactly where the bullet hit or how my son died in that car crash. I want to know the details, but do you really? Mm -hmm. And I've had survivors insist on seeing it and later say, I wish I hadn't. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that there are some that did want to see it and saw it and that was it. Um, That information is very powerful if they're in the courtroom. And we've often advised victims when the coroner is um, testifying or a medical examiner that, you know, if you want, we can step out Mm -hmm. if they're in the courtroom, if they're not under subpoena. Um, because they're going to get so much detail. And again, it gets into their soul and it's something they can't forget. Yeah, I remember uh, you just reminded me of one homicide case, Elin, and I'm, I'm not going to get too specific on it. Um, but I remember sitting in court and watching a mother watch surveillance video of her son being murdered and her physically reacting to the gunshots it was like she was there and it was just, it was awful. And still what, and she had a victim service provider sitting with her, but what, even what you're describing and the harm that can come from sitting with somebody like you or an investigator and being told, this is what you're about to see and the harm that can come from that. And then when you think about somebody sitting at home and turning on the news and suddenly seeing an image of their the body bag of their, with their loved one being taken out maybe months down the road because perhaps somebody else was murdered on the same street or another car crash happened at the same intersection. Like that is without any preparation, without any support necessarily next to them. So I imagine that the harm would be even so much greater than in those controlled circumstances like a courtroom or, uh, you know, victim services office or something like that. We're very fortunate. We have an amazing relationship with our major crimes investigators. So for sexual assaults and homicides, when a press release is about to go out, for example, in a sexual assault, we may know that there's more victims out there. So we have to do a relatively graphic um, or detailed press release so that other victims can come forth. Um, We we do our best to notify um, the family um, or close friends or whoever it was that was our point of contact so that they're aware that this press release is going out. Mm-hmm. And then they have that option to look at it or not look at it, but we give them choice. And that's what's so important is that choice that often victims feel is taken away when someone's standing in front of them with a microphone. Has your, have, have your thoughts about the media been like this since the beginning or has, has your relationship with the media and these sorts of opinions and insights, has that evolved over your nearly three decades with, with Las Vegas Metropolitan PD? Um, I think it's, it's been for a long time, um, way before working, because I've worked in various uh, communities across the country, both urban and more rural, and just seeing the impact on the victims that I was working with, either in a therapeutic setting or as a direct victim service provider, and, and kind of putting some thoughts together about how we could do a much better job of telling the story as a team. Mm-hmm. And I know that it Again, everything that I'm saying is perfect world. You know, a reporter is just as I am beholden to my supervisors, they're 
responsible to answer to their bosses. Their bosses get the story. They're going to get the story or they won't have a job very long mm-hmm. or they're going to be put on, you know, watching cute cats do funny things. <laughs> and, and that's the reality of it. So they have a job to do. But if we can work together and understand each other's roles and like, for example, that card, just to leave a card behind, if you're concerned about that victim, these are some of the people you can call educating. And I know that they've done a lot, um, at least here in the United States on a national level, National Organization for Victim Assistance, National Center for Victims of Crime. They've done a lot of work around educating the media. And um, that's very exciting because it is really, we're all working together and our, our goals are the same, a little different. We wanna tell the story. We wanna represent the victims and the survivors in the most positive, healthy way that we can. And then we wanna support them along the way. So in an ideal situation, if you could just paint a picture for me, um, tell me how the media and victim service provider can help each other and, and support the survivor or the victim to bring a story to fruition. So for example, let's say there's a homicide that happened last night. The journalist has been assigned to the story. Can you just sort of walk me through what that ideal world would look like from beginning to end? Well, I want to take it back even further. I think in an ideal world, there would be some sort of an annual forum where victim service providers could get together with the media and talk about what they've experienced in the previous year. So for example, what we did was we had a lunch that uh, we invited media and survivors to sit on a panel. And that's where we began the conversation about using file footage. And that changed for at least two of the TV stations here. It became policy not to use file footage. Mm. But like anything else, turnover is significant. I know that in the law enforcement environment, and it certainly is in journalism. Mm-hmm. So it has to be a recurring process. So that, that even predates that journalist showing up where they've had some conversation, they've had some exposure to survivors and victim advocates, and they have some contact information when they're working on a story, because many times it's not that emergent, they're working on a longer term story, but to have that sort of expert, um, subject matter expert that they can consult with to say, how is the best way to convey this? when it's a long-term story. Now, getting to your question specifically about when they show up at the door, in a perfect world, um, they would have some understanding of the impact of trauma and they would introduce themselves and be willing. And again, um, you know, I know that they're beholden to a boss, but be willing to ask, would you like to talk to me? Is this an okay time? And is there someone here with you? that can you know, kind of be your support person. Cause I know that what we're gonna talk about is gonna be emotional. Mm-hmm. You, you've mentioned the fact that journalists are beholden to their bosses many times <clears throat> and we keep directing messages towards journalists but perhaps I should ask you what your message is to those bosses because it's true, especially for young journalists they're told just go out, knock again, knock again try again, try the next day, try again that media outlet got the interview, now you have to. What is your message to those newsroom managers who are not on the front lines, who do not see the impact firsthand? What would you say to them? 
going back to they're the ones that need to be sitting on the panel or sitting in the room during that panel discussion, just as I can't make decisions for my superior officers, for my chain of command in my agency, but when we need to make a change, they need to be at the table. Mm -hmm. Because if they don't understand my role, and if they don't understand the impact of trauma, then it's useless. So they need to be in the room. Yeah. There needs to be conversations with the managers. And of course, again, it's not just, you know, everything has a hierarchy above them, um, but it's really coming to a mid middle ground um, because we're not in a perfect world mm -hmm. and, and people are trying to sustain their jobs and they wanna get that award for the amazing story that they did covering a specific incident. And I think that it's, it's, it's respecting those boundaries and understanding that we each have a job to do so that when I'm telling a victim, you're not ready to talk to the media, not saying, oh, that victim advocate just, you know, did a horrible thing and talked the victim out of talking to me, but understanding that I'm coming from my professional experience, that this could be harmful. You are really illustrating, Elin, not only the importance of journalists becoming trauma-informed, but also the importance of victim service providers becoming media-informed. Because if we're all going to get along, we can't have that adversarial relationship. We need to know that we both understand each other and that, you know, you get my job, you understand my deadlines, you understand my pressures, but I also understand that we need to take care of this victim, this survivor. And so I, I don't think that without, I think without that relationship, you're not going to get very far, but if people can just change the way that they're thinking, then many great things can happen. You've, you've talked about a lot of things. Um, is there anything else that you think, or that you just wish that journalists could understand about the trauma survivor's experience? I think it's, um, for me, when I've done media interviews, the, the best ones that I've done is where we have a conversation about what we will and won't talk about. And usually I'm supported by a, a public information officer who kind of has the lay of the land and the journalists are going to respect whatever he or she says. But um, the bottom line is that conversation before the interview um, and letting, you know, letting the victim say, we can't talk about this or, you know, whatever, but um, it's, it's that respect and that preparation. It goes right back to preparation. And that doesn't mean taking away the spontaneity, taking away the powerful message, taking away the realness of it. What it means is having that brief conversation, as brief as it needs to be, to just say, I want to ask you some questions about, you know, when the last time you saw your son or, you know, do you want to say anything that's just as you said, is there anything you want to add? Mm -hmm. Is there anything you want to tell me that was really special about your son that you want the world to hear? Mm -hmm. and, and not a general, is there anything you want to add? Because people just kind of go, no, no, I, I think we're done. But I'd like, to, I'd like them to say, I'd like them to end it with, you know, what do you want the world to know about your son, your daughter, your husband, um, your best friend? And then make sure that's part of the story. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's because it's not fair to say, what do you want to get out there? And, right. then, and, then, and, then, and then, you know, well, that didn't really fit very well because, you know, we don't like this person. Exactly. Um, you know, so we don't want to talk about what an amazing 
uh, giving person they were. Yeah. So I, I think that that's part of it. And it, it also empowers the victims and the survivors that are talking to the media to, to have something back from mm. that interaction. It's an equal exchange. And also I think it speaks to the value of the preparation. Something that I've really learned through this this project and you know the evolution of my own becoming trauma-informed is preparing uh, victim survivors, even you, Elin, for what questions are gonna be asked. A lot of times they will make notes. And then at the end, when you say, is there anything you'd like to add? They're not just searching their brain like, oh, I don't think so. They can actually refer to the notes that they've made. So Elin, do you have any notes that you've written down that you wanted <laughs> to make sure that we, we discussed and we haven't gotten there yet? I, I think that um, from my experience, it's when, obviously when you're doing that spontaneous um, interaction with the victim, homicide just happened, you're gonna get the story out like immediately. Mm -hmm. There's not a whole lot of time for, um, is this okay? Is this the message you wanted to send? And I remember in interacting with you, at one point you had sent me something to proof because we had the time, you weren't yeah. rushing to get it um, on a six o'clock deadline or whatever. And there was something exactly as I said it, you quoted me, but as I reread it, I went, ah, that could sound hurtful to victims. Can we change the wording a little? Mm -hmm. and, and that's exactly, it gave me some time to look at my own words and say, ooh, I don't know that I want people to hear that. Mm -hmm. Not because it was wrong, but because the way it was framed could be hurtful. Yeah. And, and, and for any journalist that might be watching this and think, but you're changing the quote, that's not what she said, but it is still what you are saying. It is still you. I am quoting you. Right. And so I think this is one of those things where you got to let go of all those things that you think you need to check the boxes to be practicing journalism. Like, right. yes, I'm changing the quote, but I'm not changing it. She's changing. You're changing exactly. it, Elin. You didn't change your word. words. You didn't change anything until I came forward and said, I don't like the way I said that. Mm -hmm. and, and that gave me some, gave me tremendous confidence mm -hmm. that my message would be relayed correctly. And I know that many times, um, and we have had experiences where journalists give us all of those levels of respect and, and we feel a connection to them. And then the story comes out way different. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that feels very unfair. Mm -hmm. um, and it really does taint our um, interactions with the media for a very long time, mm -hmm. screening them better and making sure that we have, you know, some control and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's, that's the, that's the byproduct of when we lose trust on and, both sides, I'm sure. And, and not just even the agency, cause that is so important. And to know that you have, you're playing a role in getting your message out there and that it's being conveyed as you wanted it to, but in terms of facts, I mean, one of the survivors in my research project reached out to me several weeks, if not months after sending me an email about some of the injuries that her loved one had sustained in, in a homicide. And she had to correct herself because no, it wasn't, it wasn't the, this part of the body. It was actually that part of the body. And because I understand now the impact that trauma can have on the brain and, and it's, it's understandable how she could get that wrong in that moment, I could fix it. But I was thinking like, my God, thank, thank God that wasn't printed 
before because that would have been so upsetting even though it wasn't my fault but it was it was about giving the opportunity for them to have another look and and make sure everything is not just as they meant to convey it but that it's actually factually correct because maybe once they've had some space and time between it the event they can you know see things more clearly you just brought up a critical point um when journalists are doing that you know, got to get it in by six o'clock story and they grab that victim, a survivor. Um, it can impact a court case because as you just pointed out, the brain um, that that has been traumatized um, can spin the story in different ways. And the story hits the front page of the newspaper and it's very different than the testimony. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly the jurors Um, they quote unquote may or may not be exposed to the story, but many times if the jury hasn't been selected, you know, people may read it and Mm -hmm. people may go, oh, she's lying. That's, that didn't happen that way. Or a defense lawyer may bring it up. The defense lawyer may say, but you, you said, you said that he was doing this before and maybe their trauma brain has tricked them into you know, something I've learned about trauma in the brain is that sequence of events often get jumbled, especially in the immediate aftermath. It's hard to, to communicate the entire narrative from beginning to end. So you don't want to give a reason to a defense lawyer to say, but you said that he was doing this first, but now you're saying that he was actually doing this first because a juror may not understand exactly why that jumbling may have happened. So that's yeah, so that's important point. when journalists put that story out with details from from the victim right after um, how it could affect a court case and, and could affect the credibility of that victim, quote, victim witness. Yeah. And then in turn, be causing more harm to them because right. that would not be a positive experience. Yeah. So I think understanding the impact of trauma is also a part of Um, for crime reporters. Not all reporters need to, but those that are specifically dedicated to crime reporting need to understand what that trauma looks like, especially if they're approaching victims immediately in the aftermath. Mm -hmm. Although I would point out with with shrinking newsrooms and so many people, everybody does everything. And and in particular, young reporters, in my experience, the the different um, newsrooms I've worked in, if you're starting out in the business, you're covering breaking news. Right. You just are. And, and, and even, even if you're a city hall reporter, if you're assigned to the weekend shift, city hall's not there, you know, you might be responding to the homicide. So I really do think that, I mean, if, if our whole world could have an understanding of trauma, wouldn't that be a better place? Yeah. And, and I think if, if the relationship between journalists and, and victim advocates and mental health providers, again, in a perfect world, journalists could, during some free time, some downtime before they're actually doing the report, say, tell me a little bit about human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the impact of trauma. Tell me a little bit about what happens to families. Families often become disconnected and broken after a major crime after a homicide Mm -hmm. because people grieve differently. So you talk to dad who presents one way and you talk to mom who presents the other way, it's already the start of a fracture in the family because dad doesn't understand why mom's reacting the way she does and vice versa. But to the media, they get two sides of the coin Mm -hmm. and and they don't always understand that. Um, And they also don't understand when you see a mom 
And I, I've seen that before where if you look on social media, because nowadays everyone can, you know, comment. Um, well, she doesn't really look like she was traumatized. She didn't look like she cared because victims don't present in any one way. They're not always hysterical because their daughter just died. Maybe they're in denial. Yep, absolutely. And you just reminded me of something that I wanted to ask you about because you have done so much work on human trafficking. You're not only the manager of victim services, but you also head up the human trafficking portfolio in your office, if I'm incorrect, is that right? It's our task force, the Southern Nevada Human Trafficking Task Force. So in your experience, what sorts of stories about human trafficking are helpful for survivors and which ones are harmful? If you can put them into different boxes. We've had cases, and especially in juveniles where you don't mention the name, um, but journalists have managed to mention every detail so that victim sees themselves on the front page of the newspaper because one of their injuries may have been um, that their shoulder was broken and that they lost a limb or whatever, um, or that they had 15 fractures. That's easy to identify because that's not every single victim. So they look and they go, that's me. Everybody knows it's me now. Um, so that's horrifying and that has happened. I think that it's stories kind of, and this again is not just human trafficking, stop glorifying the perpetrator. Stop talking about the perpetrator. I, I usually say, let's just call the perpetrator it mm. and not give it any glory, but let's talk about the victim. Um, and, and those are the things, you know, when they start talking in detail about, you know, the poor childhood of the trafficker and, you know, he comes from a broken home and he was in foster care. Well, guess what? So do our victims. Mm -hmm. Many of them have horrific histories and they don't necessarily use it as an excuse um, or a defense, um, but it certainly is makes them more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, I think that if we you know, stop glorifying the perpetrators in our stories, but also just give some information about resources in the community. Tell about a survivor that survived. Mm -hmm. Some really positive, inspirational stories. That's what, when you asked me early on, how did you get into this field? I was inspired by a victim that survived, something that I couldn't imagine waking up every day knowing that this was part of my history now. Mm. And that inspired me, that resilience. Talk about resilience mm -hmm. instead of talking about the downtrodden. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, talk about opportunities in the community to support victims. Mm -hmm. Empower people with, oh, and, and stop the myths. Stop mm -hmm. the myths about you know, the zip ties, the white vans. The bottom line is in human trafficking, we know that a majority of our victims are recruited in their bedroom in suburban homes, in low-income housing projects and apartments. They're on the computer being recruited while mom and dad or guardians or whoever are right there. Mm -hmm. They're not being abducted from the malls. Mm -hmm. People aren't following them and people aren't putting, you know, little signs on their car. So when they get out to remove the sign, they get kidnapped. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen that way. Stop perpetuating the myths and even call them out. Yeah, exactly. What would your advice be to victim service providers who are supporting a human trafficking survivor who has just been asked for an interview? Because like um, this is a conversation, I bring this up because 
it's a conversation I've had with a few people in the in the um, the gender violence field, uh, gender based violent field about you know the balance between empowering survivors to be able to tell their story and and not infantilizing them and telling them that they shouldn't tell their story but also recognizing the harms that could come from that story that they might not be able to foresee like right. it's it's a tricky situation right so we educate survivors and victims around working with the media if they want to tell their story are Think about the end result. Your story will be in the newspaper. People will see it. Your story will be on the news. People will see it. Is that something that you're okay with? And sometimes they say, absolutely. And they're in a place where they feel like their story can help others. If they're in the process of a criminal case or any kind of a lawsuit, we also let them know what the outcome can be, that it can certainly impact um, the outcome of your case, even though it's not supposed to, but justice isn't blind. And, mm -hmm. um, and we know that. So we really try to educate them big picture. What does this look like? And, you know, for example, a survivor who comes from a small town, mm -hmm. her family may or may not be aware of what's going on because they may be isolated from it, but that story can be picked up. In fact, um, anytime if you do like a Google search of a story, you might it might hit 50 or 60 or 70 times because it's picked up by different outlets. Mm, right. So again, you know, you've moved away from small town, middle of the country, you're now on the West Coast or the East Coast. But yeah, it can still hit in your local newspaper. And I, we never tell them no. Mm -hmm. We give them all of the facts and the options, and we offer them a support person if they want someone with them. Mm -hmm. and, and we tell them that you can set limits with a journalist as to what you will and won't talk about. Right. I, I have to share, Elin, that, that that happened to me as a reporter years ago. I was doing a lot of stories about human trafficking and interviewing a number of survivors. And I had one survivor who she was fine with being identified by X, Y, and Z. And she had given me her consent. And, and I'll never forget the phone call that I got from her the next day when it printed, because she didn't realize it was going to print in her hometown, that it was going to go right across the chain. And the frantic, and I just, you know, like what the damage was done, you know, we pr I probably got it yanked from the website, but people could identify who she was by some of the characteristics but she didn't realize and I don't know if I didn't explain it to her or if she wasn't in the frame of mind to truly understand or what but I'll never forget that feeling of just letting her down you know she just felt so let down because it was such a positive experience to share her story and then it all came crashing down because she didn't realize that she was signing up for this for it to be there in that specific place and it's it's, and I've heard so many other stories from victim service providers with the same, the same thing. Girl or woman comes from a smaller center to the big city. And then they don't realize that, you know, by certain details being shared, well, there's not that many people that had that injury and suddenly they're identifiable to their friends and family back home. So the other thing that's, that's really changed in journalism is when the story hits social media, mm -hmm. the public comment you know, 1,000 people, you know, some people um, supporting the survivor, others victim blaming. And that's something that the victims have to be aware of is 
you know, I, I can I can see a story about me and not personalize it because I, I'm aware. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you still personalize it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you see, well, she did a horrible job. Um, just as victims, when, when the victim blaming starts on social media and all of the comments, and especially if the negative comments outweigh the positive, it's just devastating. Oh, yeah. So again, another layer that you didn't have to deal with 10 years ago. Or even if there's just one negative comment, right? Um, yeah, I think exactly. we as human beings, like I do a lot of radio hosting work and it's a call-in show and people can text into the show and the text word is such a vile place. And I'll often <laughs> tweet about this on social media. It is the, ne- like there's trolls on there, but you hold on to the negative ones, you know, right. even if they're, they're mostly positive. I can't imagine how awful that would be seeing a negative comment when you've put yourself in such a vulnerable position, talking about the death of your loved one or the sexual exploitation that you were, you were subjected to or whatever, you know, you've done this very brave thing, speaking out about it. And then to have one person. So I, I don't know what the answer is to that. Maybe media outlets should just shut down comments on stories where more harm could potentially comes to come to well, the survivors. Nothing else. It's educating victims and survivors who do those interviews that that's a likely, yes. you know, so prepare yourself and take it with a grain of salt and know that there are the trolls. Yes, absolutely. Um, so again, can we prevent it? Absolutely not. The same way that we can't prevent someone being notified of their son's death through social media. Mm-hmm. because their network is closer while we're still trying to figure out who next of kin is mm-hmm. it's right there on social media with a picture oh yeah um you know things like that we can't we can't change that um, but we can educate people that's all that's yeah. the best we can do i think that is such an excellent message to end on we can't change certain things but we can educate people we can educate ourselves and I think wonderful things can come from that. So thank you, Elin, for that wonderful message. And thank you for the and work. For, and for all of the wonderful messages that you have shared, I have no doubt that this will be very valuable to anybody who's watched it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.